That is Marian Anderson singing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1939. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Arturo Toscanini called Marian Anderson the voice of the century. Now, most Americans know her for that iconic moment in front of the Lincoln Memorial, singing to thousands of blacks and whites who came to honor her and stand against segregation. Marian Anderson's road to the Lincoln Memorial is a momentous one, and one that reveals the cracks in American democracy and shows the cruel face of Jim Crow. It's the subject of historian Raymond Arzenault's book, The Sound of Freedom, Marian Anderson, The Lincoln Memorial, and the Concert that Awakened America. Ray was kind enough to give me some time after he gave a reading at a local bookstore. Historians have particular periods of interest, and Raymond Arzenault has spent his career focused on the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So I was curious why he chose to explore a moment, however pivotal, that took place in 1939. I had this long-standing interest in events like the Marian Anderson concert, kind of cultural events that prepared the way for the political revolution that took place in the civil rights years. Things like Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in Major League Baseball and Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics. And frankly, I was stunned that um, not only has, had there not been a book on the concert, which may not be all that surprising, it's only a half-hour concert and how many concerts get books devoted to them, but not even an, an academic article. As historians had just missed it, not unlike the Freedom Rider story, which I wrote my previous book on. So I was frankly shocked that I had found another major civil rights milestone, in my view, that, that we had missed and hadn't really focused on. I threw myself into it. Ray, explain why that concert was a major milestone in the civil rights struggle. It's a milestone, I think, in large part because of where it took place and who the characters were. It's Washington, D.C. It's not Birmingham. It's not Atlanta. It's not Jackson, Mississippi. It's the nation's capital. It's 1939. The United States is rediscovering the American creed because it wants to contrast itself with Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy. There's a rediscovery of American democracy and of course, this is in the midst of a cradle-to-grave Jim Crow segregation system, so it wasn't easy to appear to be or to convince yourself that you were Simon Pure on matters of democracy and inclusion. So the war is coming, totalitarianism is rising, and here you have Marian Anderson, one of the most famous singers in the world, a woman who, of extraordinary dignity and grace, who pulled herself out of the essentially the black ghetto of South Philadelphia and had graced the major stages of Europe and Latin America and Scandinavia and Russia and she had sung before the crowned heads of Europe and she had sung in Washington many times but in smaller venues and by 1939 she's world famous. There's only one venue that's appropriate, it's Constitution Hall because Washington is the only city in the United States, large city without a municipal auditorium. So you had to go to the to Constitution Hall, owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution, perhaps the most famous patriotic organization in the United States. And they had a white artist-only policy going back to 1931. Going back to 1931? Yes. Constitution Hall opened in 1929 to a great fanfare, and they actually had black performers in the first couple of years. 
including Roland Hayes, who was a great black tenor, who was Marian Anderson's mentor. He was her role model. He came out on stage in 1931, and he noticed that there were many fewer uh, black patrons in the audience than he expected, and they were all sitting in segregated seating, and he refused to go on. He said, I want, to, I want you to mix them up. He was really angry. But Fred Hand, who was a former actor and a militant white supremacist who ran the Constitution Hall, basically stared him down. And Rowan Hayes did sing that day reluctantly. But after that, the DAR and Fred Hand declared a white artist's-only policy. Let's fast forward to 1939. Marian Anderson had been invited to perform by the Howard University Concert Series. Now, Howard University, they had to know the policy of Constitution Hall. Yes. When the Howard University Concert Series, desperately looking for a place for Marian Anderson to sing, I mean, she had been drawing five and 6,000 people everywhere she sang, including southern cities like Birmingham and Houston and here they are in the nation's capital. She has an amazing following there, and they knew that the Howard Chapel wouldn't work or the auditorium of the black high schools, and uh, there were just there was nowhere else for her to sing. And so they really weren't trying to break down segregation per se. I think they hoped that once Marian Anderson sang there that the barriers would come down, but that really wasn't the motivation. They just wanted a place for Marian Anderson to sing, and they were asking for an exception. But the DAR wouldn't do it. Um, they got their backs up. They felt that their autonomy was being infringed. And particularly when a Marian Anderson Citizens Committee formed and tried to pressure them into doing it, they became more and more intransigent. And that stubbornness had a more far-reaching impact than the DAR ever imagined. Yes. All of this led to Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady's a resignation from the DAR, and no First Lady had ever done anything quite like this before to sort of intrude into a major public controversy. And of course, Eleanor was finding her way as a civil rights advocate, and she was trying to push her husband farther and farther to the progressive side of things. And he was hemmed in, of course, by all these powerful committee chairmen from the South who were militant segregationists. And I think he, maybe his heart was with Eleanor, but his politics were, were elsewhere. And so uh, Eleanor was trying to push the edge of the envelope, and when she resigned, it became an international controversy. And Walter White of the NAACP, who was a good friend of Eleanor's and of Marian Anderson's, and Charles Hamilton Houston, the former dean of Howard Law School, headed up this Marian Anderson Citizens Committee, which was one of the first interracial civil rights pressure groups ever created. I mean, it's amazing. It was, it was over a concert. And they kept pushing uh, to try to get... Uh, the DAR to back down, and very bad coverage for the DAR. They were compared, of course, to the fascists of Germany, and, and they were treated as you know rank hypocrites for talking about the glories of the American Revolution, but they wouldn't let Marian Anderson sing in their hall. Called, ironically, Constitution Hall. And the controversy of where Marian Anderson was going to sing in Washington spread to the school system. Yes. They're Plan B was for her to sing at Central High School, a large, uh, about a, I think it seated about 2,000. It was a white high school, and the school board turned them down, too. So, now, so here you are in the nation's capital, uh, when America's trying to sh show its democratic face to the world, and here's Marian Anderson, this lovely, extraordinarily talented 
woman who had you know who had just not only had the image of having this, the greatest three octave voice range in the world and Arturo Toscanini had anointed her as the voice of the century and she had an amazing bearing and dignity and you you would think would not threaten anyone they wouldn't they wouldn't let her sing uh, not only the DAR but also the school board well how did they finally decide on the Lincoln Memorial a couple of people, I think, simultaneously came up with the idea, what about the Lincoln Memorial? It had been around since 1922, but no large gathering had ever met there. The Park Service had never given permission. There were one church group, I think, I had about 2,000 people at one point. Uh, but this is, of course, long before Dr. King gave his I Have a, Dream, Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington in 1963, or before all of those uh, kind of demonstrations. I mean, today, I think it's the logical place to go if you want to make a point about democracy and American life, but Marian Anderson's concert was the, the the first one, and it was kind of a coming together of her promoter, Saul Hurok, the great impresario. He saw a great opportunity here, and Walter White to, of the NAACP to make a point, and Charles Hamilton Houston, and Harold Ickes, the most liberal member of Roosevelt's cabinet, was the head of the Department of Interior, and his, his assistant, Oscar Chapman, they all jumped on this, and wonderful story. FDR was leaving for Easter. It was supposed to happen on Easter Sunday. About two weeks before, he was leaving for Warm Springs, and Ickes raced to the White House to get uh, FDR before he jumped on the train and to get his okay. And, of course, uh, he, FDR had been lobbied for so long by Eleanor about uh, uh, desegregation and about how great Marian Anderson was. And Marian had sung at, uh, at the White House in 1936 and had befriended both of them. And So FDR says, you know, she can sing from the top of the Washington Monument if she wants to. And he hops on the train, and of course, they, they took him at his word. Let's talk about the day of the concert itself. Set the stage. The, the day of the concert, it was rainy in the morning and cold, and they weren't sure who was going to show up. They solicited a lot of politicians to be on the sponsoring committee, and they did have Supreme Court justices and senators and cabinet people. But a lot of people that you might expect just shied away from it. I mean, it was amazingly, they considered it to be too controversial to put their name on a program. So they didn't know what, what was going to happen. And, and she'd never sung on the, on the outdoors before. I mean, for her, it was all about the music. And, and she was terrified that she was going to let people down. And she almost backed out at the last minute. And she'd never, never been in this kind of situation before. And I would imagine the weather is not great for the voice. Definitely. Well, she gets there, and there are 75,000 people. Uh, but roughly half black and half white. They had troops of black Boy Scouts and white Boy Scouts passing out the programs, which had part of the Gettysburg Address on it. And and it, from the first time she opened her mouth, and she said she did, she really didn't later said, I don't know how I even sang. I, I, I didn't think anything would come out of my mouth. But she sang My Country Tis of Thee, of course, the same song that Aretha Franklin sang at the Obama inauguration. And she changed the words slightly from uh, my country tis of thee, of thee we sing instead of I sing. And that was like her, kind of a subtle little twist to, to make, to make a, a statement. She never really explained it. But people who were there never forgot it. It was a life-changing experience. What do you think it was about that moment, Ray, that was so life-changing for so many in the audience? They got a kind of vision of what America could be. You know, kind of a, it was just a moment but it, it was a kind of sense of the democratic promise of America in a, in a nation which often did not live up to that promise. And I mean, sadly, uh, that night after the concert, all the great feeling about it, but no 
No hotel in Washington would let Marian Anderson and her mother stay because they were black. They had to stay that night in a private home. So it was a bittersweet experience on that day, although she was mobbed at the end of the concert. People just wanted, holding up their children, they wanted to touch her, to have her sing another encore, and they almost crushed her. They actually took her back into the monument under the statue of Lincoln by Daniel Chester French, and people were touched by this concert, which was part Schubert and German leader songs and part spirituals and patriotic songs. And again, it was only a half hour long, but Marian Anderson's life, and I think American history, was never quite the same again. I mean, she became a, almost overnight a, an icon of freedom. Well, I know in her the last two decades of her performing career, she sang Aaron Copland's The Lincoln Portrait often. Would you say... She became an activist? She was a reluctant activist, I would say. I mean, for her, it was all about the music, and she never felt comfortable sort of advancing herself into the spotlight other than with her voice. But she knew this role had been thrust upon her, and she very graciously accepted it, ultimately, and created a kind of public life where she ultimately was a delegate to the United Nations and got involved in the early African independence. And she she did tours for the State Department in Asia and spoke out during the Little Rock crisis and was the first artist to desegregate um, Southern theaters in Miami and uh, Jacksonville, kind of broke the back of the Jim Crow tradition for, for black performers in the South. And you know, she lived for another 54 years after the concert. Yeah. Didn't die until 1993. And... She, of course, in 1955, broke the color line at the Metropolitan Opera, which I think for many people is a, is a staggering uh, revelation that it was 16 years later before Met, the Metropolitan Opera in New York City would allow a black person to sing. And meanwhile, she was singing in the great opera houses around Europe. Well, she never actually sang opera. There was a notion that she might. Uh, she was really a, a concert singer. You know, She sang German leader Schubert... She sang in four or five different languages, and but she she never had an opera career. It's interesting that opera was the most segregated part of the classical music world. In general, classical music was off limits to African Americans, and I think people didn't know what to do with her. They didn't know where to where to sort of pigeonhole her. wonderful stories of uh, Southern music, music critics, one in particular in Houston, who after seeing her performance in, in Houston in the late 30s, he, he wrote this amazing piece of criticism saying, you know, I've been covering the music scene for 35 years. I've never seen anything like this. First of all, I've never heard a voice like this. But secondly, to see the reaction of this crowd, both black and white, um, going up and almost forgetting the Jim Crow system of, of sort of mingling together in front of the stage, trying to get her to sing a uh, more more of an encore to talk to her to connect with her and and he couldn't help uh, this particular critic of sort of speculating about this this cultural experience might be a way of getting beyond the 
kind of traditions of, of Jim Crow racism. And I think you can see that uh, in many ways, they, some of these cultural figures like Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in Major League Baseball and, and Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics and Joe Lewis knocking out Max Schmeling in 1938, that those things in and of themselves perhaps can't change the world, but they paved the way for the, the heavy lifting on the political scene later, that the timing of the civil rights movement, things like the Montgomery bus boycott and and uh, uh, the sit-ins of 1960 and Birmingham in 1963 and the Civil Rights Act, all those things might have been very different if, if you hadn't had the Marian Andersons and the Jackie Robinsons sort of paving the way, or to, maybe to mix the metaphor, I think there were kind of cracks in the mold of, of American racism. And it was sad for the DAR that they somehow didn't get the message, you know, that everyone else knew how famous, how wonderful she was. And and they found themselves on the wrong side of history in 1939, and they've been paying for it ever since. They've tried to make amends in recent years, and but it was a very embarrassing thing for them, in part because of the their their, their the pretense really of, of 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 representing American democracy, and yet giving this extraordinarily dramatic representation of the d- denial of democracy in the nation's capital, you know, against Marian Anderson of all people. You know, I'm thinking, Ray, arts that's used for politics, propaganda, like Soviet art, typically not so good. But the way pure art can just authentically open minds in a way that allows for a broader political engagement, you can't predict it, you can't make it happen, but it's extraordinary when it does. Yeah, and I think sometimes art culture can get beyond our sensors that the maybe our antenna are up to 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 ward off things more specifically in the political realm but we sometimes react to music just sort of spontaneously and i think that's what people did with marian anderson she didn't fit any of the what of their expectations she wore parisian gowns and uh you know she was so well spoken and so obviously kind and compassionate and they didn't know what to do with her and i think in trying to figure out what to do with her it, it reorganized, I think, their notion of the way the world at least could operate. Ray, I, I don't mean for this to sound trite, but the bottom line, what do you think came out of the Marian Anderson concert? Where did it leave us as a country? Well, I think two things. One, it set a pattern for an interracial civil rights coalition. All the groups that came together to try to get her a place to sing in Washington, that really had never happened before. The one, the one possible exception is the Scottsboro case of the 30s, where you did have blacks and whites marching for the Scottsboro Boys. But this was so deliberative. It's really a kind of preview of coming attractions for the civil rights movement. And it's very early now. This is eight years before Jackie Robinson breaks the color line in Major League Baseball, for example. And it's 15 years before the Brown decision, so it's very, very early. But I think more importantly... It shows that um, that there's this obvious gap between the theory of American democracy and the reality, that it gave this dramatic representation, uh, which is going to happen again and again during the war. I mean, in some ways, it's the first beginning of this ideological transformation uh, in American life where racism loses its propriety. I think prior to World War II, you could use racial epithets, you could talk north or south, and sort of be pretty sure that everyone would affirm your your white supremacist kind of suppositions, uh, that that's, that was the way of the world. And when, once we go off to war and we're fighting a kind of Nazi racism, by 1945, 
you have to hide it behind code words, and it's it's no longer respectable. Even the Southern demagogues, even the Theodore Bilbo's, can't be quite so open in in, in expressing racism as the American way. And I think the Marian Anderson concert is one of those events that pushes the country um, towards this sort of newer sensibility. I mean, by by no means is it the promised land. There's a lot of hard work to be done, but but at least it puts the burden of proof on the white supremacists. It, it's no longer the accepted mainstream of American life. And it, and I think it, part of it has to do with her dignity, her whole kind of persona, her mystique. Uh, I mean, by the 50s, she is among the 10 most admired women in the world. She's right up there with Eleanor Roosevelt and the others. Uh, I mean, she's largely forgotten today, I think, but should remember that you know during the 50s and 60s she was a, a towering figure and even people who know nothing about classical music knew something about what Marian Anderson stood for and uh, I think that 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 symbolism can have enormous power uh, and I think in her case it, it it really did just as it did for Jackie Robinson and for some of the other some of the other figures and I think we have not fully appreciated the power of art and culture and music to set the stage for the political change, and it's a one of the great new frontiers in in uh, civil rights studies. I'm, I'm doing a book on Arthur Ashe, and I see him in some ways in the same mold as someone who ultimately is a very important figure in the civil rights struggle, but it's he's not really at the center of it, and yet I think his life, just as Marian Anderson's life, uh, uh, influenced millions of people in a positive way. Tell me what surprised you as you did the research for this book. Well, a lot of things surprised me. I have to confess, I didn't know a great deal about the classical music world or about the place of African Americans in it. And I, it was a wonderful kind of journey of discovery for me in, 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 that, in that sense. Uh, you know, when I started, I I had some doubts that I could write an entire book on a half-hour concert. Of course, it's not just about the concert; it's about her life and and the consequences of and causes of the, of, of the concert. But still, the, the the center of it is the concert, and I I worried a bit. Maybe it should just be a journal article. But as I got into it, I realized that there were so many connections and so many people involved and it reminded me of the contingency of history the power of contingent events of of the unpredictability of history and that when certain people make the right decision at the right time through acts of courage or conviction or conscience they can change things um, uh, there's no guarantee of that but I think Marian Anderson is a classic example of that uh, where I mean she could have backed out she was very uncomfortable doing the concert and she would have been remembered as a good singer. Uh, but obviously she wouldn't have become Marian Anderson. And I think, again, Eleanor Roosevelt had to take some chances. Franklin Roosevelt, Walter White, uh, all of the people involved, they were important characters, including the DAR. The DAR had enormous currency in American life in those days. And for that, for the fact that they turned her away uh, and the fact that Eleanor Roosevelt was one of their members, not, not never a particularly active member, and that that the first lady had to take this step, uh, it created an, a national dialogue. And it's hard to imagine that anyone else could have done this. I mean, that Marian Anderson is the indispensable figure here, creating this 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 iconic image 
uh, that could could get to people who probably hadn't thought very very much about the American creed or about civil rights or what it was actually like to be forced to take the freight elevator when you go to a hotel or to eat in your room because you're not going to be you're not going to be welcomed in the dining hall or when she was even in the north when she when she went to Princeton in 1937 to try to check in at Nassau Inn and they turned her away because she was black and where did she stay that night Albert Einstein's house he heard about it and uh, for the next 18 years until the end of his life, uh, she would stay with him every year. But most towns didn't have an Albert Einstein. And uh, so even even though she became one of the wealthiest black women in America, gave away a lot of her money, philanthropic causes, but and had this extraordinary life and hobnob with celebrities and, and uh, saw more of the world than almost anyone else in the United States could see, there was still a world of hurt. For her, and and she 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 bore it with such dignity, yet she she let it be known that this is not the way the world is supposed to operate. I mean, I think she really had a powerful sense of herself as as an American. When you think about it, she came back to the United States uh, in December of 1935. She could have stayed in Europe the rest of her life. I mean, and had a perfectly comfortable life. And but as she said, you know, I. I was an American, and it just it just hurt me to the core um, that I found all this freedom in Scandinavia and other parts of Europe, and yet uh, uh, I didn't feel that my own people appreciated me as a human being in the way that they should. And she was determined to be a role model. She's very hard to uh, to place in the sort of normal continuum of, of black politics. Uh, between the protest tradition of W.E.B. Du Bois and the accommodationist tradition of Booker T. Washington. She doesn't really fit either one. Um, she, she really thought that uh, if she could somehow bring her music to the world and bring her persona to the world, that, that somehow the prejudice would, uh, would if not f- melt away, at least it would, it would turn a corner. It would, it would somehow, it was the contribution that she could make. And uh, so, so I think it's impossible to distinguish that from her voice, which of course was absolutely haunting, um, it, it couldn't be anybody else but Marian Anderson. You never mistake her voice for anyone else, and it—I it, mean, Toscanini was right. It was really, it really was the voice of a voice of a century. You know, she was one in a billion. Ray Arzenot, thank you so much. My pleasure. That's historian Raymond Arzenot. We were talking about his book, *The Sound of Freedom*: Marian Anderson, the Lincoln Memorial, and the concert that awakened America. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.